Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, I'm Daniel Eisenberg, and this is McKinsey on Startups. On today's episode, we're excited to be joined by Adrian Nussenbaum, co-founder and CEO of Miracle, the leading SaaS platform provider in the rapidly growing enterprise marketplace sector. Started in France about a decade ago with co-founder Philippe Corot, Miracle helps both B2C and B2B companies set up their own online marketplaces where they can leverage third-party vendors to offer their customers a much wider range of relevant products or services. It now counts more than 300 of the world's biggest and most well-known enterprises as customers, including Macy's, Target, Walmart, Carrefour, Toyota, Siemens, Airbus, and L'Oreal. With more than $100 million in annual recurring revenue and more than $4 billion in transactions conducted over its platforms last year, Miracle has raised close to a billion dollars in the last few years, putting the company's valuation firmly in the unicorn category. As Nissenbaum discusses in our conversation, Miracle views marketplaces and the emerging marketplace economy as a way for many brands to start to regain control of distribution at a time when a handful of platforms have come to dominate the e-commerce business over the past two decades. So now let's get to our conversation with Adrian Nussenbaum of Miracle. Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Miracle is the global leader in enterprise marketplace SaaS platform with more than, I think, 300 customers using your products these days. Can you tell us a bit more about what the company does and also give us a, a view into the state of the sort of the marketplace e-commerce sector? Miracle is a, is a tech company. It's a 10-year-old business, which by generational reshaping industries, company standards, still very young. So is the marketplace economy. 10 years ago, when we started this company, we had this vision of the evolution of B2C and B2B commerce. We felt that the world was evolving from a offer-driven economy to a demand-driven economy. And that the pre-digital era, everyone who had something to sell, make, or distribute was leading consumption. They were telling consumers and buyers, this is the product, this is why it's the best, this is the price, and you, you should just buy it from us. With digital, everything changed. There were no more boundaries of space and time. Information became ubiquitous and systems could easily interconnect to each other. So consumers have now turned into these buyers who decide whatever they want, where they want it, how they want it. For us, this was a major shift. So then we looked at how can you address that shift if you're a business, if you're a brand, if you're a manufacturer, if you're a retailer, can you always make everything that people want? Can you always buy all the products and sell the products that people are going to want? Can you always have them in stock, ship them wherever people want at the right price? No, it's impossible. Amazon realized that quite early and they said the only way to address this is by having a marketplace of third party sellers, by recognizing that we as a business can create value by connecting supply and demand and not necessarily owning or making all of the supply. That was the beginning of the era of marketplaces. From a miracle standpoint, we said, okay, how can we participate in this? 
And the first phase was running a marketplace, it's complicated. It's multi-sided exchanges, a lot of interactions, integrating a lot of catalogs from different sources. Let's solve that problem. And that's how we were born. The marketplace is more than just tech. It's also an ecosystem of third-party suppliers, of tech enablers for fulfillment, payments. How can we as a company put ourselves in the middle and become a hub that can unify this evolving marketplace commerce? And that's kind of what we're on as a journey. And unlike Amazon, the vision was never for Miracle to be interacting directly as a Miracle-branded platform. Rather, you were always going to be the technology provider, the platform provider to other companies to set up their own marketplaces. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because it really relates to the core of our mission, which is If you think of the internet economy back in the 90s, we all had sparkles in the eyes. We felt it would be a new era. It would be amazing. But as a business, when you look at who's dominating and leading, it's a handful of massive platforms. We set up this company on on kind of a mission, which is let's give a tool for others to fight back, to win back. So we, we support large enterprise businesses across retail and manufacturing from Macy's and Carrefour all the way to Airbus and Siemens and Toyota. And we tell them, this is a new business model. Embrace it. This is the tool. Become a platform business yourself because your customers, your partners are looking forward to having someone like you at the center organize exchanges of of goods and services. So in a sense, helping these established players whether retailers or manufacturers, stay relevant in this new era of e-commerce. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. I would just add also not just established enterprise, but also emerging businesses. Sure. And obviously, you've had incredible momentum in recent years. You raised more than half a billion dollars on a strong Series E recently. Then that was a year after raising $300 million. And I think your valuation is, is now well into the unicorn stratosphere of three or four billion. This has to mean obviously a lot of growth and innovation. Is the scaling going as expected in terms of challenges are you having to overcome? So as a founder, you measure success in a a few different ways. The the first one is how proud your mom is and how much she complains about you not calling her enough. It's also about the value creation that you bring. And we look at the billions of dollars of sales that we have allowed our customers to generate. We also look at it from a more human perspective, which is hundreds of jobs, uh, thousands of small businesses who have found new uh, new channels to sell their products. But someone used to say uh, in a great movie, with great powers come great responsibilities. So with great funding comes <laughs> great obligations. And, um, and definitely um, scale is a challenge. From a miracle perspective, we try to, to parse the thing that we can really influence, where we can have as much control as possible, and the things where, because of broader market conditions, we have less control. So if I look at the things we can control, it's focused on building the best technology, uh, listening to customers. And it's important to mention that because every tech company will tell you we listen to customers. But when you're selling a software, a solution, which is enabling businesses to do something that they've never done before. It's not like you come in with a set playbook, with the recipe. You're not a tech that's replacing something else. So listening to customers is even more complicated and and challenging because customers have a lot of different ideas. 
And as much as you want to say yes all the time, a lot of what you have to do, given that you are kind of leading with the vision, is find the right balance between this is how we see the world going, this is why we're building this solution, and we've listened to you, which is why we're introducing X, Y, and Z. This is really something we, we work a lot on. Then one of our big purpose and also challenge is that we are helping businesses create new revenues. So obviously we want them to do as much new revenues as possible. But when you think of a marketplace, it's a disruptive business model. Uh, if you think of yourself as, as being a merchant who has been working 20 years, working with your suppliers, selecting and buying and negotiating wholesale prices, and suddenly someone tells you, you know what, now we're going to also sell on the website products from third parties who are directly coming in and setting the price and shipping the products, there can be a bit of reluctance to embrace change. So change management is also an area that you wish you could control completely, but there's still a lot of education that needs to be done. Right. I think you recently announced plans to hire something like 1,700 employees over the next three years or so. It's obviously an ambitious target. That's got to take up a lot of time thinking about and trying to match those goals. It is. I kind of tell people, the one thing I know is that we will hire a lot of people. We will never hire them at the moment where the Excel spreadsheet says we were supposed to hire them. So as an HR team, don't stress out, embrace uncertainty and think about everything you can do to work towards reducing the uncertainty, employer brand, employee experience, and enablement to reduce attrition. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you control very little things. So the few that you can really control and try to master, you should go 150% all in because then it gives you a bit of flex for everything which is unplanned. So when you talked about dealing with customers who are having to adjust to this new kind of environment. It almost sounds like every new relationship involves trying to help with cultural change. You know, it's almost a choice, a personal choice. I'm lucky because my co-founder is a great visionary and he loves products and he builds our product. What I'm interested in is change. It's trying to understand the world that's coming and it's trying to help and lead people in this journey. There's a lot of fears, you know, we come with proof point, we come with customer testimonials. We call our clients platform pioneers because they've taken those risks and we try to leverage them in explaining. But then there are a lot of breakthrough moments. And I think we're very, very lucky to work in a field where we can experience those moments. I just received the call from the CEO of a multi-billion uh, US retailer who called me and he says, Adrian, good news. I've presented to the board our vision to evolve this business from being just a distributor of products and becoming a destination for our industry, a true platform. And these moments, they feel really good. Going back to your background, what interests you most in starting companies and, and building them? Before Miracle, you founded a, a couple of different companies, a, a corporate instant messaging software in the middle of the first dot-com bubble. After that, a digital marketplace for gamers, which was then sold to one of France's largest retailers. And then you and your co-founder went and worked at the retailer in the marketplace solutions area for a while. How did these different experiences impact how you've approached building Miracle? 
So, you know, people say you have to experience failure and uh, I've had my share of it. What did I learn? I learned that what matters the most is the starting team and the alignment of values between you and your co-founders. If you have co-founders, it's a people's business. It's a team sport first and foremost to build a company. And there are a few things we try to, to look for in, in the people who, who work with us. One of them is try to focus on eventually post-rationalizing, but not pre-rationalizing. Because if you try to pre-rationalize, you end up never doing anything because there's always more reasons not to do something than to do it. I think post-rationalization is a big uh, skill that entrepreneurial mindset should have. I always tell people, when you join Miracle, you need to have this entrepreneurial mindset. You need to be good, try to be a good person. I think it's important. And then you can call it as ethics, alignment of values, etc. But the last thing I always tell them is, you know, don't be a problem digger. I don't need anyone smart to come to me with a list of problems they found. Try to focus on being a problem solver. Yesterday, I had a, a call with one of my VPs and he comes up with this slide of problems. I was going to open my mouth and he says, Adrian, wait a moment. There's one more slide behind <laughs> and behind there was the solution slide. And I was very happy. So your reputation precedes you in the company. Talking briefly about Split Games, which was the gamer company, I've seen you describe it as the first marketplace you guys created before it was sold. When you sold it, you went from the position of founder to then being a director in a much bigger company. How was that shift for you? How did that set you up, both of you, to build Miracle? Without knowing it, an amazing incubator for Miracle. And I won't tell the whole story of how we ended up selling to FNAC and not another company. Miracle would have never existed if we had done the, the other deal. So FNAC is a company that one out of three households in France has a loyalty card. It's a mix of Best Buy and Barnes and Noble. Everyone has gone there to buy comics or buy a camera. We were joining an institution and we were very naive in doing so because we were acquired. They paid us money to add a third-party marketplace to their e-com business. A week in, we sat at the executive committee presenting the strategy. And aside from the two people who had been involved in the acquisition, everyone else was like stunned by what they were hearing. You're going to have other people sell products on our own website that potentially compete against us? Never. We're like, okay, um, how are we going to do that? And that's where the learnings came and that were beneficiary to what we do today at Miracle because we searched allies in the organization. We listened to people who, who were uh, reluctant. We tried to understand and we built a listening and challenging type of methodology. And we ourselves went to sell in the stores to listen to the salespeople who were afraid of e-commerce. The e-commerce team was afraid of marketplace. And that was like 13 years ago now. So we went through this learning journey and packaged all that experience when we decided to create Miracle. So it was a blessing. It was a challenge, but it was a, it was a challenging blessing. It sounds like that was your first real education in the cultural issues of working with institutions. And I assume that really helped as you started to build your business working with customers that were getting introduced to this new approach, this new model. Invaluable. And we even learned how to shut our mouths sometimes. 
Right, right. Always a good skill. Adrian, let's shift back a little to uh, to the current state of the marketplace industry. A recent survey, Miracle, showed that marketplaces are getting more and more relevant. Uh, something like two-thirds of U.S. online shoppers say that they prefer marketplaces to conventional e-commerce sites. Is the third-party seller aspect the exclusive differentiator between what you might call a conventional e-commerce site and a marketplace? And do you feel that that marketplaces eventually will define e-commerce, or do you think there will still be distinct differences going forward? So the main difference between e-commerce and marketplace, or sometimes people refer to e-commerce as first party and marketplace as third party. The, the main difference is that when you run an e-commerce site, you're basically selling products that you either have made or bought. And you acting as a distributor, as a brand manufacturer, as a brand retailer, but your value chain spreads across much more steps in the journey from you know, product to consumer buying the product. Whereas when you're running a marketplace, you are connecting buyers and, and suppliers. Uh, when you're Airbnb, you're connecting homeowners and renters. Whereas when you're Hilton, you're renting or buying real estate and running. And so the economics are really different. The main difference is that it's much easier to scale a marketplace because you are free of almost all the constraints. The other difference is that you carry way less costs of sales. Your ability to experience, take risk in terms of merchandising, introduction of new products and services, testing is, is much bigger when you're running a marketplace. That being said, every e-commerce business stop being an e-commerce business and become only a marketplace? No, we, we've never advocated for that. There are businesses who are only marketplaces, obviously uh, from eBay to Etsy, from Farfetch to others, but we, we've never advocated for that because we believe that what's really going to happen is that somehow everyone is going to participate in the marketplace economy. And we, we see it uh, with our customers. If you take two of our customers, Kroger uses Miracle to expand its selection of products on its ship to home offering with a marketplace and third party vendors. Bed Bath and Beyond uses Miracle to have a marketplace and expand its selection of products in adjacent categories or deepen in. But also Kroger has now partnered with Bed Bath & Beyond so that Bed Bath & Beyond becomes a seller on Kroger to propose and, and enrich the whole home category. So if you look at funding, it's billions of dollars that have been invested in third-party marketplace sellers. So businesses that are created only to use marketplaces as sales uh, channels. Recently, the CEO of Kering, uh, François-Henri Pinault, who owns Gucci, Balenciaga, etc., he announced publicly that they were stopping all wholesale commerce. So they are not selling wholesale anymore to digital commerce businesses. They said they would only operate through what they call e-concessions. What's e-concessions? It's a polite word for marketplace. And we see it with our clients from Macy's to 
the Bay to Gallery Lafayette. The brands now want to regain control of their distribution and marketplace is a way to do that. So what I'm trying to say is that commerce is just one channel, one revenue channel. And marketplace is basically the anchor that allows you to sell with third parties, sell with your own inventory, sell by creating partnerships between different players. And this is an evolution. Customers prefer marketplaces because more choice, more availability, uh, better prices, better selection. What's not to prefer? And in terms of B2C versus B2B, obviously, online shopping for consumers is really ubiquitous now, especially after the pandemic. How does that compare in B2B in terms of uh, adoption for marketplaces? So just to give you uh, some data points, three, four years ago, the B2B side of our business, so basically manufacturers, distributors, procurement organizations, was less than 3% of our business. Mm. Uh, in 2021, it was 25%. Wow. And the market is huge. Obviously, there is much more players in that space. So the acceleration is happening. What we're seeing is basically uh, two main strategies. One is the one-stop shop strategy. So if you are a leading distributor of parts for uh, professional kitchens, you want to be the one-stop shop for all the needs of a restaurant. We recently signed with uh, the embottling business of Coca-Cola in Europe. They want to be the one-stop shop for their customers. They have this relationship with the customer. So why not serve them with more? Then there's another approach, which is more seen across manufacturers, which is about how can we reconcile the fact that we want to grow our direct to business buyer business because we need the data. We want to serve our customers better. So we need that insight, but we don't want to mess up with our channel partners. Customers think that you can get really anything you want online at any time, including business buyers. We had this example recently where an order was passed for almost $700,000 to buy from different partners, all the things you need to create a metal platform to service the helicopters. The order was passed by a airfield that does maintenance. And so it creates trust between all the ecosystem and it gives the end user access to a unique centralized experience. You use the term ecosystem to talk about the broader relationships. And, and I think you, you've also rolled out something called Miracle Connect. Can you talk about how that plays into this broader ecosystem view of the marketplace business? So the vision for Miracle Connect is uh, quite simple. We went from having the best technology to power e-commerce marketplaces to saying, you know, through this technology, uh, many, many third-party suppliers and sellers are being connected to many, many miracle-powered e-commerce marketplaces, but it's, it's siloed, basically. If you're a supplier, you can be selling on 10, 15 different marketplaces, but you have to have 10, 15 different integrations. And so we said, why not create a platform in the middle that would serve as a, as a value creator for all, of, all the participants, for sellers, it helps them find faster new marketplace channels where they can sell with one-click onboarding, 
Uh, and for the marketplaces, it can help them find new suppliers and grow the, the marketplace faster to the point that our new clients launching see between 40 and 70% of the sales coming from suppliers that they've sourced directly from Miracle Connect. So that's phase one. And what we're now building is a number of solutions on top that are facilitating a lot of the needs uh, deriving from being either a seller in the marketplace or running a marketplace around financial services, fulfillment, insights, et cetera, et cetera. To some degree, it almost sounds like a marketplace of marketplaces. That, that was how I named it on, the, on our Series E uh, pitch deck. Oh, really? I know you had your first acquisition, Octobot. Can you talk about how critical that is in terms of you deciding that to be your first acquisition and, and it, the role it's going to play going forward? The importance was twofold. One is, as we grow these B2B marketplaces, uh, we, we run into a lot of, um, of specific needs and invoicing compliance was one of them. So we identified a, a good technology on the market, which also served the second purpose, which is that there comes a time in, a, in your growth when you realize that you can't necessarily do everything yourself. The same thing we explain to our customers. Don't try to build all the tech in-house. Octobat was a bit of a stepping our toe into uh, acquisitions. And, um, and actually, uh, just before recording this podcast, we had a company all hands where we announced our second acquisition, <laughs> which is a more sizable process. They're all driven by enriching the, the solutions on top of the Miracle platform to create tools and services that accelerate the flywheel for our customers and their sellers. The one we announced today is a tool that allows sellers to push the right products to the right marketplaces. And it allows the, the marketplaces to show products the right way to increase conversion because you have a hundred thousand products and suddenly you add another million products to that. It's a big disruption for the search engine. So this acquisition gives us the ability to create curation at scale. In terms of the companies you work with, if they're building their own marketplaces, that doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't also participate in other marketplaces, right? Like B2C companies, would some of them perhaps also want to be a third-party seller on Amazon to have that presence there for particular customers? Yes, we are seeing and encouraging much more cross-pollinization, just like the example of Kroger and Bed Bath I, I was sharing before. So I can have my own marketplace, but I can also use other marketplaces as a sales channel. Do you invest separately in other startups or are you singularly focused on Miracle these days? I'm very focused on Miracle, really. I don't describe myself as a business angel because obviously my wife would not say I'm an angel, but also because I have tremendous respect for investors. It's a very, very hard job. I hate saying no. I've been told no so many times by investors that I, I would hate being that person. So the only investments I do are investors who have backed Miracle in the past and women founder-led companies specifically focused on things that pertain to uh, education and health. But I don't see myself becoming an investor in a later life. And I've read recently about the Imagine Fellowship. 
does that play into the same focus in terms of education? Or what was the impetus to set that up? I think the impetus is a broader one, which is life is short and let's find meaning in life. I've always been very sensitive to world peace. And I was trying to figure out a way to bring education and that together. Randomly, my alumni organization called me up to ask me for a donation. And as I was thinking through that, I said, you know what, I'm going to not only do a donation, but I'm going to donate 10 times what you want me to donate, but we're going to create a, a new program within the school. And it's the Imagine Fellows, which is basically a combination of uh, scholarships for students coming from countries at war, development of a business and peace uh, curriculum within the MBA program, and also a student-led organization putting together a youth peace and business summit. So this is all starting, but it's very exciting. I told the dean, I was half joking, but uh, we're going to have the Nobel Prize for peace. And I realized that I haven't seen any trace of an educational organization getting the Nobel Prize. I was thinking, what's better than people who can educate people and bring them together in, in a context where you're learning and sharing to foster peace. So it's a bit naive, but I'm a big believer in imagine all the people living life in peace. Everybody's talking about the metaverse these days. How do you view this in terms of e-commerce and marketplaces? Is this something you guys are thinking about actively and talking to customers about, or does it still feel too early? When people ask me to look in the future, usually I say, uh, sorry, I, I don't have my crystal ball, but I have my, I have my crystal bubble. <laughs> and I don't know, Metaverse, uh, how much it will play in the reality versus bubbly uh, bubble. I'm not a tech visionary. I'm lucky to be partnered with one. The one thing I see is that there's a lot of agitation. Some people are definitely benefiting from it. What I think is interesting into the Metaverse concept is the data piece, which is re-emphasizing the importance of owning data. And we've seen in the last 10 years how people say data is the new oil. I've made this kind of stupid joke saying that the big digital giants who dominate the world, they've built weapons of massive data collection. And I think part of the miracle vision is to, to give a business model to our customers that allows them to regain a bit of that data to use it to create qualitative experiences and relationships with their customers. So when you think about all the talk about metaverse or virtual and augmented reality, right now you think of it more about strengthening the relationship between sellers and buyers and, and giving a little bit of that control back to the merchants. And adapting faster your value proposition to ever-changing customers and buyers. And I guess in some ways, the metaverse could just be a new way, a new place for customers and sellers to meet, just a different uh, visualization of it. When you think about the next five to 10 years uh, for Miracle and the marketplace sector in general, how would you define success? There's different dimension, but as I said earlier, we think the internet economy has, has failed us a little bit in the sense that too few are leading it. So we are really into this vision of building the marketplace economy, which involves new relationships, new jobs, new exchanges. Miracle is on this path to create the marketplace economy. From a product vision, everything we're going to do is to 
reinforce this position as a central hub for this marketplace economy, an enabling hub which shares the data across the participants. And so that's the journey on a more personal basis. You know, when you start a company, I'm always intrigued by this question on exit strategy. I always tell people, I don't have an exit strategy because frankly, the last thing I want to be thinking about when I'm starting is when I'm going to be exiting. You know, my first business was a failure. The second one, we had an, an exit, which was promising. But now that I have a company that's actually successful, in a way, the last thing you think about is the exit. But then comes the question of, do you want to lead it for the rest of your life or, uh, or not? And I've always tell people that I believe that my greatest success would be to have Miracle be run one day by, by people much more competent than me and still be around when I have grandchildren. Right. Some people say the CEO's most important job is succession in terms of positioning the company for future success. So I think that sounds like a great ambition. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak in such depth about Miracle and the marketplace economy and your journey. It's been fascinating to hear and it'll be interesting to watch as Miracle continues to push the marketplace sector forward. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's it for the pod. In addition to our guest, Adrian Nissenbaum of Miracle, I want to thank our production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, and Myron Shergan. And of course, thank you. We hope you return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.